Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. In order to understand Revelation 19, we need to understand a few subjects. We need to understand the Bride of Christ. We need to understand the marriage of the Lamb. We need to understand the marriage supper of the Lamb. So before we head to Revelation 19, we're going to spend some time in Ephesians chapter 5. Would you join me there? And this morning, as I teach, I'm going to teach what I honestly think was Paul's intention in Ephesians 5 as he wrote the text. Yes, this passage has many applications for a husband and a wife within marriage. But our focus is going to be on our relationship with Jesus Christ, which sets up our understanding of the marriage between a man and a woman. The story is told from a long time ago about a prince and a peasant girl who fell in love. The prince was a man who had the world at his disposal. Nothing about this man was common, and it would not be exaggerating to say that he was the perfect catch. The peasant girl, on the other hand, was nothing more than common, and at best it was said that she was average, and at worst it was said that she was just plain ugly. There were times when she was moody. There was times when she was cranky. She rarely ever lived up to her full potential to achieve all that she could. In fact, to look at her from the eyes of anyone else, you would never believe that the prince fell in love with this young girl. But to see her through the eyes of the prince, you would believe that she was to die for. This prince determined that he couldn't live without her. So he asked her to be his bride. And no one expected this. No one thought this was possible. And the angels in heaven even listened as she heard his proposal. This prince promised his bride that he would come back for her soon. And the peasant girl vowed to faithfully wait for his return. Now you would expect at this point that the bride would always be thinking about the coming wedding. But instead, the bride rarely ever mentions it. You would think that every waking moment would be lived out in anticipation and preparation for the coming of her prince. But by the way she lives, you wouldn't even know that she is the bride of a perfect prince. And more often than not, you can't even tell the difference between the bride and any of the other peasant girls in the village. There are even times when she can be seen flirting with the other men in the village. And many speculate and many question and wonder what she's doing when no one's watching. So can you imagine a peasant girl fortunate enough to have a prince such as this offer her his eternal love? You'd expect her to be overwhelmed by his love and filled with a sense of gratitude that she was fortunate enough to be loved by him. You would think that she would be careful to remain pure in her expectation of the return of her royal groom, but instead to look at her, to look at her, you might wonder if she even remembers that she is engaged 
at all. So let me ask you, is it possible for a peasant to forget about her prince? Is it possible for a bride to forget about her groom? You see, that's a question that the church of Jesus Christ, the church of our day, needs to ask and needs to answer. Because as you may have guessed, the story of the prince and his peasant bride is not a fairy tale or some story from medieval times. It's a story about the church of Jesus Christ. Because the church of Jesus Christ is what the word of God describes as the bride of Christ. And to be quite honest, much of what is passed off today as the church of Jesus Christ appears to have forgotten about the groom that we're committed to. Take a look at verse 32 in Ephesians 5. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. I'm going to throw out a lot of Bible passages at you today. I want to encourage you to jot these down and go home and study them. In verse 33, we see that Paul does apply this as an application, key teaching there, application, he applies it to marriage. But verse 32 is the key that teaches us that much of the teaching of Ephesians chapter 5 is not just about a husband and a wife, but between, it's about Christ and his church. You see, all throughout the New Testament scriptures, the word of God testifies to this eternal truth that the church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ. Paul writes of this in so many places. If you don't know this teaching, you're missing a significant teaching in the New Testament. Look at the words of Paul in Romans 7, 4. He said, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you, what? May be married to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Notice who Paul says we're to be married to here. We're married to him who was raised from the dead. We're married to Jesus Christ. See, believers in Christ have died to the law, and we're now united with Christ. But also, I want you to notice with me this. Notice one of the reasons or the purpose for this marriage is that we would bear fruit to God. Bearing spiritual fruit brings glory to God. Both the King James and the New King James hit it right on the head here by testifying we should bear fruit to God. We won't always, so don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. We will not always bear fruit to God. There are going to be times when you live like the old man. There will be times when we live like the person we were before salvation in Christ. There will be times when we give in to the sin nature, but the Word of God proclaims this. We should, we absolutely should, Christians, bear spiritual fruit to our God. Notice 2 Corinthians 11. Look at what Paul told the church of Corinth. He said, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You see, Paul informs us here something very important. That's that we are in the betrothal stage. That in the future, we will be presented to our husband, Jesus Christ. With a shepherd's heart, Paul is saying here, Hey, I want more for the Christians in Corinth than the worldly wisdom that they had turned to. Paul's goal was to present the Christians as a chaste virgin to Christ. In other words, 
What is Paul saying? He's saying, my goal is not just to attract large crowds. I'm not just here trying to gain an audience and get attention from people. And my goal is not to just please men. My goal, Paul is saying, as a shepherd and spiritual father of the church of Jesus Christ is to present the Christians to Christ pure, holy, and separated from the worldly living. You see, let's say it like this. Just as we men want a faithful bride, so it is with Jesus Christ. Wanting a church, his bride, that is solely committed to him. So in order to understand this entire concept that we're going to look at in Revelation 19, of the church being the bride of Christ, and understand the marriage supper of the Lamb, you need to understand the pattern of marriage that took place when the Bible was written. Because I truly believe that the marriage of Jesus Christ to his church is going to follow this same pattern. The first step of marriage was the betrothal stage. During this time, the groom's father would promise his son to a chosen girl. This could actually happen when the the couple would still be children. The father would make a proper down payment called a dowry and then sign the legal papers. Now, it's not uncommon for a bride and groom to have never seen each other before, before the actual wedding day. But even if they did know each other beforehand, they knew that they were committed to this future spouse and that they were obligated. They were to remain pure, pure in anticipation of the coming day. Think of the betrothal of Mary and Joseph recorded for us in Matthew chapter 1. It speaks of this. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. See, this was the common practice back then to promise the children to one another. And sometimes this would take place when they were very, very young. Seems strange to our thinking today, but they would only be two or three years old. Quite a bit different from today, hear this, when we have people thinking marriage is all about our happiness and all about our rights and all about living for ourselves. See, the Jewish people understood that marriage is an institution created by God. I don't care what the government does. Marriage is an institution created by God that is designed specifically for the purpose to bring glory to God, not to ourselves. And this betrothal stage... It actually had two different parts to it. One part was the selection of the bride. See, the father had to pick out the right young lady for his son. The father would look at the parents and the families of these young ladies to help him choose in picking out the bride for his son. And this portion of the betrothal stage is taking place right now and has been taking place. Back in Ephesians now, but instead of chapter 5, notice what Paul said in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He said this, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as what? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, what? Holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, Paul was spilling a lot of ink in Ephesians, a lot of ink about God's sovereign plan of bringing Jews and Gentiles together in one body, God in eternity past, electing the church, the body of Christ, to a position in Christ. Focus on this marriage aspect to Christ. 
And understand that the church was chosen. Church was chosen before the foundation of the world to be the bride of Christ. This should excite you as a believer in Jesus Christ. In Luke 14, that's a passage you want to jot down. In Matthew 22, another passage you want to jot down. There are two parables from our Lord. The parables are similar, but not identical. Jesus did that often. The parables are similar, but not identical. Not given on the same occasion. But before we look at Luke 14, just listen how Jesus starts out in Matthew 22. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Very key statement. Interesting statement. Listen to that again. Let's read it again. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So this teaches us something. And it reinforces the idea that Matthew 22, it gives us some insight into God's kingdom and the marriage celebration of Christ being married to his church. And while I do not think that Matthew 22 and Luke 14 were on the same event, I do believe the subject matter of Luke 14 also becomes a discussion of the marriage celebration of Christ being married to his church. Luke 14, watch this, with starting with verse 16. It says, then he said to them, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground. I must go and see it. I asked to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I've going to test them. I ask that you have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, were any of these excuses legitimate? Honestly, was there a single excuse here that was legitimate? The land and the oxen would all still be there after the banquet. They'd all be there, wouldn't they? And the man with the new bride should have brought her with instead of using her as an excuse. And let me just say this, our excuses are no better before God, are they? Look at what he says next in verse 21. He says, so that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Now, who are these people? The poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind? These are the people that the Pharisees would have looked down upon. It continues, and the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. The statement has been rightly made that God is more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved. And I say that because left on his own, no man will come to salvation in Jesus Christ. It continues, then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of these men who are invited shall taste my supper. So I want you to understand with me as we build this doctrine, as we start to understand this topic in the word of God, that the supper described here teaches us about this future marriage supper. The celebration of, of Christ being joined with his church in heaven. You see, we must understand that as believers in Christ, that God the Father is calling out people right now to be the bride of Christ. 
And I truly believe in this text, in, in the gospel here, that some of the people who made excuses, who made excuses to not attend this feast were the people of Israel. It was the Jews who rejected Jesus Christ at his first coming. And this is why, verse 23, Christ was speaking of going out into the highways, going out into the Gentile regions to invite those being drawn in by the Savior. The Holy Spirit is drawing people to come into the family of God right now. The Holy Spirit is calling out the bride of Christ. Now, John the Baptist spoke of this. And as we look at this in John 3, keep in mind that some of John's disciples were concerned. And why were they concerned? They were concerned because Jesus was just starting out in his ministry. Jesus was baptizing people. And in verse 26, you see that Jesus was starting to gain a following. They were worried about John's ministry. And look at how John answers in verse 27. Pay attention carefully. It says, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Watch this statement. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. An amazing and subtle teaching in this passage. I'm still amazed after all these years of studying this text that this is here in the word of God. Notice that John did not say he was a part of the bride. He didn't say he was a part of the bride. He said he was a friend of the bridegroom. John the Baptist was saved by faith, absolutely, just like the rest of the Old Testament saints. But the bride of Christ is the church. Custom of their day was that the friend of the bridegroom was there to assist the bridegroom. He didn't participate in the wedding. He didn't get to. But he made arrangements for the groom made arrangements for the groom before the wedding would actually begin. John was stating that he knew that his job was there to prepare for the bridegroom. So when John heard the bridegroom's voice, he knew his work was coming to an end. John knew that Christ had come to begin to call out his bride. And so he said here, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, another passage you want to jot down. When the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to know why the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting, but Christ's disciples were not. It says there, and he said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Every person who has trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation from the day of Pentecost to the time when the rapture of the church takes place during the church age is a part of the bride of Jesus Christ. We friends are that bride and we will be united eternally with Christ. So I want you to think of this. I want you to think of what we've studied so far. We're still talking of this betrothal stage, this betrothal stage of the wedding the Holy Spirit is calling out people to come into the family of God. The Holy Spirit is calling out the bride right now. And the second part of the betrothal stage is the payment of a dowry. In the weddings of their day, the dowry had to be paid. 
and they would sign the proper legal papers at that time. And once the payment was made, once the papers were signed, the young couple was then considered betrothed to one another. But just let me tell you this, Christians, that the dowry for the church of Jesus Christ, the dowry for us is the highest payment that has ever been paid. Because the dowry payment for us is the very blood, very blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, it teaches us, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? I wish Christians would understand that concept. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. And again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with what? The precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. The dowry for the church of Jesus Christ, the dowry that has been paid for the bride of Christ is the very blood of Jesus Christ. Now take a look at our text first in Ephesians 5. And then we'll head to Revelation 19 in a minute. Paul speaks of this. Verse 23 in Ephesians 5, Paul says in the second half of the verse, he says that Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. And again, down in the middle part of verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So this idea in verse 25 is that Jesus Christ loves his bride so much, Jesus Christ loves the church so much that he took the initiative. He took the initiative and handed himself over to death to pay the dowry for you and for me. Jesus Christ wasn't a victim. He went to the cross as a willing sacrifice, and that was his supreme demonstration of love for the church. Men, understand that. Be willing to lay down your lives For your wives, Jesus went a willing sacrifice. First, in verse 26, we learn that Christ wanted to sanctify and cleanse his bride. And the basic idea, if you know doctrine and you know the word of God, as we've been studying here, the basic idea of the word sanctify is setting someone apart for his service. In other words, think of what it's telling us. It's telling us that God has set apart Christians for himself. Paul is telling us something. He's saying that Christ died to assign the church to himself in an exclusive and permanent relationship. Exclusive and permanent relationship. Cleansing the church with the washing of water by the word means that he made his bride holy by cleansing her. God the Son is without sin, and so must his bride be without sin. Now this doesn't really have anything to do with baptism, and this really doesn't have anything to do with us sinning or not sinning in our lives. This is positional. This is how God sees us, because Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. Washing of water by the word. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to what? His mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, 
And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, positionally, God now sees us as holy. God now sees us as without sin. God sees us as having been cleansed from sin. And the washing of water by the word in Ephesians is a reference to the word of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the purifying words of the gospel of Jesus Christ that make us clean. It is by the words of the gospel that we're made clean that we are washed, which flows right into verse 27, where we learn again that this cleansing, that this washing of his bride is why. It is that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So notice here in Ephesians 5 that Paul uses this image of a young bride. And the idea in the text is that there will not even be one small blemish on his bride. The image conveyed is that Christ's bride will have unsurpassed beauty, which once again carries with it the idea that his bride will be holy and blameless on that day. So Paul says at the beginning of verse 27 that Christ is going to present himself to his bride. But notice something with me in the text. He does not say when. Now, during the Jewish weddings, they would have what was called the presentation stage. The father would send for the bride. The bride would be brought to the father's house. Verse 27 tells us that Christ will present the church to himself. Well, this will start. This will start at the rapture of the church. As we're called up to meet our Lord and Savior in the air, we'll be presented to him. And shortly after the judgment seat of Christ, this marriage will take place. Revelation 19 teaches us that this marriage will take place in heaven. Skip down to verse 29 in Ephesians 5. It says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. I want you to notice how united the church is to Christ. Christ is both the head and savior of the church. Christ gave himself up for the church in order to sanctify the church. And in chapter 4 of Ephesians, we see now how the Lord provides for the nourishment of the church. By giving the church evangelists, he gives the church teachers, pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But take a look at where Paul takes us in verses 31 and 32. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, Paul quotes the passage from the Old Testament. Paul quotes the verse that has shaped his entire thinking on this subject. And the passage that he quotes is Genesis 2.24. And that, by the way, is the most fundamental statement in the Old Testament concerning God's plan for marriage. Right before this, in Genesis chapter 2, Adam was describing how Eve was taken from the side of him to be his companion. And Paul is using this text and he applied it to the union of Christ and his church, thus backing up his point in verse 30, where he tells us that we are a part of the body of Christ, that we are joined to the body of Christ. And then in verse 32, he mentions our key phrase that we looked at before. Paul tells us that the mystery, the mystery is great. A mystery, what is that? We've talked about this so many times. It's just a truth that was previously hidden that is now brought to light. 
And the simple point here is that the Christian marriage, the relationship between a husband and a wife is on par, hear this, is on par with the one that exists between Jesus Christ and his church. Meaning the church is as close to Christ as a husband is to his wife, which is why, hear the application, one of the purposes for marriage is to model Christ's relationship with the church. I wonder what that would look like if we applied that. We should let that change us. Let that change how you live. Thinking back to the wedding Bible times, we said that they would have the betrothal stage where the father would pick out a bride for his son and where the dowry was paid. And then they had the presentation stage where the father would send for the bride. And at the proper time, they would present the bride to the groom. This is the stage that Paul was referring to here in verses 25 through 27. And the last stage that we have not discussed yet is this celebration stage. And this is what we see recorded over in John chapter 2 when Jesus was at the wedding. And after the wedding, they would have a marriage supper. Now, keep in mind, those of you that have studied the the book of Daniel with us as a church, remember the teaching of Daniel chapter 9, that there would be 70 weeks of years when God would deal with the Jewish people, not the Gentiles, not the church, but the Jewish people. 69 of those weeks of years have been gone by, leaving one week of years or seven years left on the clock when God is going to deal with the future nation of Israel. The church will be gone. The church during the tribulation will be with Jesus Christ, will be united with Christ, and then comes the marriage supper. Longest introduction in the planet of the earth. Here comes Revelation 19. Now that we have our foundation... We can walk through Revelation 19 like that. Watch this. Starting in verse 1, John tells us this. He says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. John heard what sounded like a loud roar of people in heaven praising God because of the judgment of Babylon. This happens after Babylon is destroyed. From a great multitude, the words will come, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Alleluia, what does that mean? It means praise the Lord. This is the New Testament hallelujah course is what it is. It really is. Because it is the end of the world. And the end of the world in the Bible is not actually that scary if you're a redeemed believer in Christ. It's not. Meaning the end of the unrighteous world system driven by Satan. All the lies, all the deception, all of it's going to go bye-bye. And it's going to be no longer steered by lost and wicked men. Verses 2 and 3. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged a great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. See, God's judgments are true and just. God will do what he says he will do. God will judge the great harlot, the apostate world religion that we already looked at in chapter 17, because God is avenging the blood of his people killed by the harlot. Babylon's smoke will rise up forever and ever. Her destruction will be permanent. The flames of the physical city of Babylon will eventually die out. But the eternal fate of the people connected with Babylon will be an eternal 
reminder of her destruction. The worship continues in verse 4. Some beautiful worship in Revelation 19. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. In chapter 4, we saw that the elders are believers in Jesus Christ from the church. This is the vision of heaven and the future. And the elders represent believers in Christ who faithfully serve Christ until the end. They represent maturity. They represent experience. They do not represent all believers, but instead they represent faithful believers who will one day rule with Christ forever in his eternal kingdom, chosen by God to worship and serve before the very throne of God. Now the 24 elders and the four living creatures worship God before the throne saying, amen and hallelujah. And then John continues in verse 5. He says, then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. First, the worship described in heaven was because of the judgment of God that he had done on Babylon. But now the worship is described in anticipation about what is to come, the second coming of Jesus Christ and his perfect reign on earth. And here comes the text that fulfills the marriage of the Lamb, starting in verse 7. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. When we partake in the Lord's Supper, Paul already told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we look back at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we also do what? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he comes. But we're also looking forward to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 7 The marriage of the Lamb has come. Why? Because the marriage takes place in heaven, but the feast of the wedding was after. Notice in verse 9 of Revelation 19, the text says, Blessed are those who have been called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, after the wedding would take place, they would have the marriage supper as a time of celebration. This is for the church of Christ, the bride of Christ. This will be a time of great celebration, this wedding feast with Jesus Christ. And if you break down verse 9, we see that the phrase, those who have been called to the marriage supper, these are the invited guests. This is not the bride. This is not the church here. And most Bible teachers believe, myself included, that this refers to the saints that were not a part of the church of Jesus Christ. This would be who? The Jews in the Old Testament who were saved by faith. And this would be the tribulation saints. Because the marriage supper of the Lamb is between Christ and his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. And then verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Man, people worship so many things besides God. 
John was so impressed. I love his brutal honesty in this text. He was so impressed with the scene of heaven, he fell at the feet of an angel. And he learns a lesson here, doesn't he? He gets schooled. He learns a lesson not to worship angels. Stop worshiping angels, people. The angel said, worship God, nothing else. Worship no one else. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, meaning that the very nature or purpose of prophecy is to testify of Jesus Christ and to bring glory and honor to him and him alone. Message of eternal life through faith in Christ is a message that tells people about the future and how to prepare for it. One more passage for you this morning. In Luke 12, we have another parable, which I believe gives us some more insight into this wedding feast. Take a look with me, if you would, starting in verse 35. And if you're tracking with me, you're about to see something very cool in Scripture. It says in Luke 12, verse 35, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Your waist being girded meant to be ready. Very simple teaching. Remember that they have those long robes that needed tucking up into their belts to allow them the freedom to work. So the idea then is to be watching. Just be ready. Be ready. Verse 36. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from what? The wedding. That when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those Servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Now, let us be very clear about this passage. This is not about the church and this is not about the rapture of the church. This is a passage for the nation of Israel. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation. But notice again the reference in verse 36 of the master returning from what? A wedding. The marriage of the lamb will take place in heaven during the time of the tribulation on earth. But the marriage supper of the lamb, which we just looked at in Revelation 19, takes place on earth after the second coming of Jesus Christ. Tribulation saints who survive, which is what we have in this text, will be invited guests to the wedding feast and the Lord will serve them. And that's what's being mentioned in verse 37. The parable is talking about this wedding feast after the marriage has already taken place. Now the supper will be set. The celebration will start. And I want you to track this teaching. Our Lord and Savior is going to gird himself, meaning he will prepare himself. He is going to seat the bride of Christ and the guests at the supper table and serve his people. That's humbling and amazing because we ought to be serving him. We will worship him, but it says in the text here, he's going to serve his people. Praise God. I can't even imagine how great it will be at this great feast with our Savior. One of my all-time favorite stories, so many years ago, a mother was tucking her little girl into bed when the young daughter asked, she said, Mom, can you tell me the greatest day of your life? And the mother thought about it for just a second, and then she said, you know, honey, I can tell you the greatest day in my life. And she started to tell her little girl all about that day. She said to her, my father was a man who fought in the Civil War, and I remember it like it was just yesterday. My mother and I were sitting on the porch one warm day, and several months earlier, we had gotten word that he had been killed in battle. 
And I was playing with my kitten as my mother and I were sitting in the swing. And ever since my mother had heard that my father had died, she'd been sad. She missed him so very, very much. But on that day, we saw someone coming down that long, dusty road that ran in front of our small house. And my mother said, oh, there's a man coming down that road. And then a moment later, she said to me, sweetheart, I, I do declare that man kind of favors your father. And after another moment, she said, darling, I really do think that is your father. And as she said it, she burst from the porch across the front yard, through the gate on the picket fence, down the road toward the open arms of my father. And I was right behind my mother. And I jumped from my father's arm, as I often did as a little girl, and he would swing me from his arm. But as I jumped for his arm, all I found was an empty coat sleeve. And I saw the scars of battle on my daddy's face. And I saw that his body was bruised from the war. And I knew that he must have been missing an arm because of the war. And then the mother said to the little girl, the greatest day in my life was when my daddy came back home. For the believer in Jesus Christ, the greatest day of our lives will be when we go home to be with Jesus Christ. I hope you believe that. He's coming back for his bride. He's coming back for his bride. And once you understand the truth of Christ, and once you understand the grace of Christ, and once you understand that our future is all with Jesus Christ, you have no problems whatsoever with the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24, where it says that we are taught that we should be subject to Jesus Christ. I hope you believe it. I hope you're looking forward to that day. And I pray that you live your life in a way that redeems the time, making the most of every day for our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.